Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke 4, 7 through 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to Luke 14, New Testament. Uh, And as as many of you know, but just in case you don't, uh, we're in a series right now called DNA. And the underlying premise of the series is that because every living, breathing human being uh, has their own DNA, you know, their own their own unique God-given blueprint of what, what they're going to look like and act like, we said the same must be true of every church, you know, which is not, not merely an organization, but a living organism uh, made up of human beings. And so as a church, uh, there are going to be certain things that God encodes into our spiritual DNA, you know, that make us unique, not better or worse than other churches, just, just unique. And so we're identifying and talking about what makes Parkview who we are, you know, uh, the things that, that we believe, that we're committed to, that we value, things God has sort of woven into our ecclesiastical genome, if you will. And we've tried to capture uh, these things in very simple, easy-to-remember language. So here are the topics that we're um, exploring together. Uh, people matter, ridiculous generosity, everyday worship, better together, relevant teaching, everybody does. Uh, and each of these, these phrases reflect a unique aspect of, of Parkview's DNA. And if you missed last week, we began, we talked about um, how people matter. And if you missed that, you can go online and, and listen and catch up. But this morning, I want to talk about being a church that's ridiculously generous. 
And uh, to be honest with you, I think, um, I think we are, or at least moving in that direction. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we, we're just starting our second year in a two-year generosity initiative through which our people have committed not only their time and energy toward having a greater impact on, on their world, but their financial resources as well. And uh, of the $7.5 million um, dollars that are committed, $1.1 million of, the, of that is, is being just given away to other ministries in other areas outside of these walls as far away as places like Calcutta, India, uh, Africa, the Middle East, Europe. Uh, all in an effort to reach more people with the good news of Jesus. And uh, we refer to this burst of generosity as going all in for God because God has gone all in for us. In fact, it's that very idea that's reflected in the scripture uh, Ali just read from, for us from Luke 14. Uh, the text there records three speeches that Jesus uh, gave at a dinner party one night. And, uh, and each speech could be taught on separately. In fact, most times they are. But I want to try to address them all together, all at once, in an effort to show how they're very much connected. Because ultimately, what Jesus does at this dinner party is he lays out a ridiculous standard of generosity and then explains how it is a reasonable response to the gospel of grace. Okay? So I want to talk about that with you. Before we do, let's pray. Our Father, once again, we're thankful for uh, the day that you've given us to live, to love, uh, to worship you, our Creator. And I pray that, that now, in the time that we have, um, you would remove the distractions from our hearts and from our minds, anything that would keep us from hearing from you and from hearing what is right and what is good, what is healthy, what is true. And so speak to us, I pray, by the power of your spirit at work. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus gets invited to... Um, this dinner party thrown by a, uh, a very prominent Pharisee, a religious expert. But before we look at what he says, just so you know, in the cultural context of first century Israel, these kinds of parties, um, they weren't about entertainment per se. They, they were mostly about retaining and or gaining social status in the community. For example, the, for the guests who were invited, the goal was to go uh, to be seen, and to somehow try and form a closer connection to their influential host and, and to some of the other muckety-mucks who might be there. For the hosts who threw these kind of parties, it was a strategic way to firm up their, uh, their network of friends and, and influence. So it was, it was all about palm greasing. It was all about uh, deal-making, political maneuvering, um, power-peddling, favor promising, you know, you know what I'm saying? In short, these events played a significant role in the socio-political pecking order of the day. And so Jesus goes, and when the call to dinner is made, he notices how all the guests uh, started jockeying for positions um, because it was understood that the closer you sat to the host, the person of power and prominence, the more honored you would be and thus establish a greater social status for yourself. And so Picture musical chairs without any music and without any fun. That's pretty much the way it was. It was all business here. And so Jesus witnesses all this, and he takes the opportunity to speak to it. And in his first speech, which is essentially a parable, he addresses the guests who were scrambling for the seats of honor. And he says, you know, 
When somebody invites you to a feast, don't take the place of honor. A person more uh, distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, hey, give this person that seat, and you'll be humiliated. You'll have to take the least important seat in the place. He says, instead, when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the guests For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, on a very pragmatic level, uh, what is Jesus telling uh, the guests? He's telling them to not be so arrogant and selfish, right? He's saying, instead of taking the best seat at a party like this, be humble. Be, Be generous. Give that seat to someone else, assuming they're more important than you. Take the worst seat in the house. He says, chances are you'll end up being honored because in life, no one really, no one really likes arrogant, greedy self-promoters. People tend to resent them. But those who are modest, those who are um, truly generous, are often respected, admired, and spoken well of. Now, my guess is that his listeners, you know, who understood the sociopolitical dynamics and purposes of the party, were thinking, you know, come on, dude, Jesus, seriously, what, don't be a rube. That kind of generosity is ridiculous. It'll get you nowhere in life. But nobody says anything. Perhaps no one knew what to say, or maybe it was because they didn't have a chance to say it, because Jesus immediately turns from the guests to the host, and he says to the host of the party, he says, and when you give a dinner, don't just just invite your friends and family and your, your, your rich cronies. If you do, they may invite you to a party and you know, in an effort to repay you or offer you a favor or something. In other words, you'll get something out of it. Be truly generous, he says. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I mean, can you imagine the look on the host's face when Jesus says this in front of everybody? I mean, you talk about audacity. Jesus directly, speaks directly to this guy and challenges his motives uh, for throwing the party. But what was Jesus really saying? Some might suggest he was was giving permission to never invite friends or family over to your house for dinner. Some people would say, I think that's a really good idea. I'm going to write that down. Take notes. (laughs) Everybody scribble notes down. Remember, Jesus said this. You know, is that what he was saying? Well, no, that's not what he was saying. Jesus was speaking idiomatically. In other words, his statement made sense uh, um, inside the language, inside his language and culture, but is, is easily misunderstood uh, by those who are on the outside. Uh, for example, it's like when we say things like, you know, Ray kicked the bucket, or, you know, I banged my head against the wall trying to figure something out. Those outside our culture, unfamiliar with our, our language and our figures of speech, are going to interpret those statements very literally, and they're going to ask, why did Ray kick a bucket? Or, why, why did you bang your head against the wall? That's not very smart. That's going to hurt. You know, they're going to say that because they're not cued in to our, uh, our language, our cultural idioms. In fact, a little later in this chapter, Jesus uses another very common Hebrew idiom at the time when he says, he says, anyone who would come after me and doesn't hate his father or mother cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. I mean, did he mean that did he really mean that we're supposed to ignore the Ten Commandments, specifically number five, where we're told to honor our father and mother? Jesus says you don't have to do that. Is that what he was saying? In fact, we have to hate them? No. In the ancient Near East, the idea of hating someone, and the, words, the word that was used 
It was very different from how we see it, how we use words. The idea of hating someone back then was more about choosing one person over another. It was about prioritizing one relationship over another. Essentially, Jesus was saying, if you want to be my disciple, he says, here's the deal. I want you to love me even more than you love your parents, massively more than you love your parents. I want you to make your relationship to me a priority. But here's the point. At the party, Jesus was doing the same thing. I mean, he wasn't telling the host to never invite friends or family to dinner. But he was saying, don't just give to people who can give, give, you, give back in return, who can return the favor. Don't just give for what you can get out of it, Jesus says. He says, I want you to give more. He goes, I want you to give massively more to those who have physical and spiritual needs, you know, who, who, who can't pay you back. I want you to prioritize your generosity toward um, charitable ministry. And um, again, we don't know uh, what the host was thinking because he doesn't say anything. But my guess is he was thinking, you know what, Jesus, that kind of generosity is ridiculous. And frankly, many in our culture would think the exact same thing. And for for us in the room today, uh, I just think it's really important to clarify and recognize that Jesus wasn't saying, don't ever throw a party or spend money on yourself, have fun. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, he's saying it's just that the money you do spend on, on, on charity, helping the poor, the money you, you give toward ministry, you know, bringing spiritual life to, to, to people who need it, should be massively more than what, you, what you're doing. He said it should be a priority of your life. Are you following me? I mean, look, it's no secret that, uh, that most of us have, you know, in life have financial goals. You know, we do. We, we have lifestyle preferences. We have vacations we want to go on, clothes we want to buy, cars we want to drive, those kind of things. And so our inclination is to go after those things and get them. And then if there's anything left in our pockets afterward to give to ministry, uh, we will. In other words, the priority is on ourselves. Giving to and giving for others, we tend to view as optional. And Jesus says, I want you to shift that thinking. I heard um, a story recently of a British farmer who raised livestock, and one of his cows was pregnant, and he got pretty excited about it because he had all the livestock he needed, so he figured he would sell the calf after it was born, after it grew up a little bit. He would sell it and make a lot of money. Well, the cow gives birth not to one, but two calves. So the guy is twice as happy. I mean, he's really excited because that's twice as much money. And uh, he goes and he talks to his wife about it, and he says to her very magnanimously, you know, God has blessed us with two calves. So here's what we're going to do. When they're old enough, we're going to sell both of them, and we're going to give half of the proceeds to the Lord. We'll keep the rest. Several weeks go by, and one day he goes into his wife, and he's very sad. And she says, what's the matter? And he said, well... Bad news, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> His wife said, I didn't know we had, we had to distinguish the two. Oh, absolutely, it was the Lord's calf that died. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, the moral of the story is it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Huh? It's always the Lord's calf that dies. In other words, there, look, there are certain clothes we want to buy, trips we want to take, places we want to live, things we want to own. And it's not that that's bad, it's just that becomes our priority. And if we have enough money left over afterward to give the charity or ministry, we will. But if there's a problem, if there's a glitch, 
if we're in a pinch, if there's nothing left, charity and ministry get little or nothing. And Jesus says, I want you guys to flip that. Which means, not only does he call for our giving to be a priority, but also for our giving to be sacrificial. And here's the thing. Jesus' words here go right along with the overall teaching of Scripture. Because in the Old Testament, for example, the standard for giving was really quite clear. Uh, it was 10%. It was, it was called the tithe. That means 10%. God said to his people, I want you to give 10% of your income to, to the Levites, to the, to the spiritual work of the temple, to ministry and to charity. In the New Testament, the same was true. It was just assumed, and there's one instance when Jesus refers to the tithe, and he affirms it. But for the most part, he doesn't, he doesn't say much about it. And that's true in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, instead, we have instances where, uh, for example, the Apostle Paul says, God loves a hilarious, cheerful giver. Or uh, one instance, he praises the financial sacrifice of a certain group of Christians who he said, in rich generosity, gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. In other words, they, they gave sacrificially. Now, I think all of us in this room will probably acknowledge the importance of giving, right? In fact, a lot of people will say things like, man, I'd, I'd love to give more to charity and to ministry and to God, but I can't afford it. And when we say that, what we really mean by that is, I can't afford to give without sacrifice. That's really what we mean. And yet that's the whole idea of Scripture. That's the whole idea of generosity. And the Old Testament, the tithe was the baseline standard. And Jesus says, you know, it's a good place to start, but here's how, here's how you know if you're really giving enough, if you're truly generous. He says, it's got to hurt. It's got to hurt a little. There needs to be sacrifice. There, there, there are going to be things you can't do, the places you can't go because of your generosity. You know, um, when thinking about this very topic, about giving to ministry and to charity, uh, Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I don't believe one can settle how much, one, or how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving doesn't at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. Now look, like it or not, Jesus calls his people to sacrificial giving. And, and that's the new standard. And, uh, and that's what he's getting at when he, uh, when he addresses the host of the party. Now, does, it, does that seem unreasonable? To some people it does. And uh, it's certainly shocking. There's no question about that. It, it's very shocking. It certainly makes me review my giving practices. Am I truly generous? When John Newton, um, the famed 18th century pastor and songwriter, studied this text, he wrote a commentary on it. And John Newton said, One would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14 wasn't considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglected by his own people. He said, I don't think it's unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words don't teach us to give more generously, I'm at a loss to understand them. And John Newton uh, many of you may know, is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And as I see it, you know, when it comes to ridiculous generosity, really that's the key. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, Jesus' call to, to prioritized sacrificial giving is not unreasonable 
if we understand the gospel of grace. In fact, in each of his speeches at this dinner party, Jesus hints at this. First, he addresses the guests, right? He says, don't take the honored seats, take the lower seats. And at face value, his words just seem very pragmatic. He's saying, instead of being an arrogant, selfish slob, you know, be humble, be generous, and you'll be honored. But there's more to it than that. Because what Jesus says in verse 11, cuts, it cuts to the very core of spiritual reality. He says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now keep in mind, Jesus was speaking to religious people here. And religion is all about, is all about going to God and saying, look at all my efforts. Look at, look at all the rituals that I have followed. Look at all the good deeds I have done. I deserve acceptance. I deserve honor. I have earned it. And Jesus said, you know, if you do that, if you arrogantly exalt yourself before God, you'll be humbled. You'll be rejected because that's, that's salvation by works. But he said, if you humble yourself before God and say, look, Say, I deserve rejection. Lord, forgive me. Then you'll be accepted. You'll be honored. I.e., if with God you humbly take the lower seat, he will graciously exalt you. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That is the good news of grace. So what does that have to do with generosity? Well, I think it has everything to do with generosity because when you understand and experience the grace of God, you begin to view life differently. You begin to, to view everything differently, including your priorities and the things that you have and the things that you own, the things that you want. I mean, look, without God, in our culture, without God, money is everything. It's everything. It's, it's self-esteem. It's, it's personal worth. It's security. And so scrambling to the top Scrambling for more and more, it all, that makes sense because that's, that's all you've got. But because of God's grace, Jesus says, you know, we have, we have inner spiritual riches, true personal wealth before God. We have eternal security. And so there's no need to scramble anymore. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, there just seems to be something right and healthy and balanced about that. You know what I mean? No more scrambling. Here's my Ray K summary. Experiencing the grace of God changes us. It does. And it makes giving away money in ridiculous proportions more reasonable. And on top of that, check this out. When Jesus addresses the host, he says, you know, when you throw a party, don't invite, don't invite those who can pay you back. Instead, invite the poor, the needy, the spiritually destitute. Be ridiculously generous. Why? Jesus says, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Listen, when it comes to um, living the ridiculously generous life that Jesus calls us to, here's the problem we face. And let's just be upfront about it. The idea of pouring ourselves out for others, the idea of, uh, of serving the less fortunate, the idea of caring for the sick and the troubled, the idea of befriending outcasts, the very idea of giving ridiculous amounts of our money away to make a spiritual difference in the lives of other people and and, in the life of of our world means that sometimes we're going to feel like we're missing out, right? I mean, I think it's true. There are going to be times we're going to think to ourselves, man, look at so-and-so over there. They get to have this, they get to have that, they get to go there and here and everywhere. I don't get to do that because I'm sacrificing for the sake of others. Man, I'm missing out on life. 
And Jesus says, no, you're not. He says, no, no, you're not because of the resurrection. You're not missing out at all. I mean, there's more to your existence than just what you see and taste and touch in this life. There's more to, to, to our existence than what's here. And it's easy to forget that. But as a follower of Jesus, this life is not all there is. And your future is not, is not about being some ethereal, vapor-like, disembodied consciousness floating through eternity. You have the guarantee of, of true life and a new heaven and earth. I mean, remember, following the resurrection, his resurrection, Jesus, he could, Jesus could be touched, he could be hugged, he, he ate and drank with his friends, he went here and there, which means he didn't miss, he didn't miss out on anything. And neither were you. You see, the secular view of human existence anticipates uh, no future after death, nothing. We're all just biological accidents here with no purpose. Love is a just a chemical reaction in your brain. Life is void of meaning. There's nothing. Eastern religions teach that at death we lose our individuality and we're kind of assimilated into this great universal consciousness, but our physical lives are gone forever. Even religions that acknowledge some heavenly paradise see it as a consolation for the pain of this life and the joy we missed out on. But Jesus taught something completely different completely different. The Christian view is one of physical resurrection. Not hope in a future that's a consolation prize for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life we've always wanted and are all searching for. True life. Jesus spoke of this, as, of this restoration as the regenesis of all things, and he insisted that one day he would return to earth with such power that the very material world and universe will be purged of all decay and brokenness and evil. Because of Christ's physical resurrection, everything will be made right and whole and good. Because of his resurrection to life, our resurrection to new life is graciously assured. We will walk in the kingdom of God, not float over it. And the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a big feast with eating and drinking and laughing and singing and dancing and, and worshiping, which brings us to the third speech of the evening. Because as Jesus was speaking to the host, this guy at his table hears him mention the resurrection of the righteous, and he perks up and with an air of smug self-righteousness says, Bless is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. In other words, this guy was pretty convinced that he would be at the feast. And so Jesus turns and he addresses this rather smug guest and he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is really like and how it works because not everybody gets in. Jesus said, it's like, a, it's like an exceptionally wealthy and powerful man preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. And the Greek, word, the Greek term that's used here for great is the term mega. It's a mega feast. It's a massive feast, massive party. And Jesus says, when the time was right, uh, the master sends his servant out to inform those who are invited to come, for everything is now ready. And so the servant goes with the, the good news of the feast, but the first group of people were too busy, you know, with business and other, other things in life, too busy to go. They all had their reasons, they all had their excuses uh, to reject the invitation. 
And so the master says to his servant, okay, then go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant goes out. And they, they, they accept the invitation and they come. But the servant says, there is still a lot of room. And so the master says, then go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full because I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste, get a taste of my banquet. Now, what was Jesus getting at? Well, for the sake of time, uh, let me give you my Reiki abbreviated interpretation. It seems that Jesus was pointing out to this group of, of religious guys that eternal life in the kingdom of God is like a, like a free mega feast. And all one has to do to get in is accept God's generous and gracious offer to come. That's it. But self-righteous people you see are going to reject the invitation because they don't feel the need to follow the servant. They don't really f- see the need for God's grace. Others will acknowledge their, their brokenness and their need and will readily, readily embrace the invitation and, and, and God's offer of grace. And then there are some, Jesus says, who will, who will have to be compelled to come. And the term compelled is an interesting one. It means to argue, to debate, to persuade someone of something. And I read that and I thought, why do some people need to be persuaded? And I think it's because the whole idea of God's, of God's grace, his unmerited favor, is just hard to grasp. You know what I mean? It's just hard to grasp. And somewhere along the line, a whole lot of people have come to believe that, that, that God's kingdom feast is more like a potluck dinner, you know, where you have to bring something to the table. But what does the master say? The master says, come, everything is now ready. Everything's ready. All you need to do is accept the invitation and follow the servant. There's nothing more for you to do. There's nothing, nothing to bring. The feast is great. The feast is free. Leave the, the tuna casserole home. Please leave the tuna casserole home. <laughs> Nobody needs tuna casserole. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but for some people, it just seems so hard to believe, you know. But it's true. Grace is what makes the good news of Jesus so incredibly good. And when we come to understand that and when we embrace it, then we will do and we will give just about anything to tell others about it. Now, here's the thing. I've read this, <clears throat> this chapter in Luke many times before, but it wasn't until recently that I began to see how everything Jesus says at this dinner party was, was connected. You know, he speaks to this group of scrambling, arrogant, self-righteous religious people, and he lays out this ridiculous standard of generosity, and he explains how it is a re- it's a reasonable response to the gospel of grace if you accept the gospel of grace. I'm not claiming that I've got generosity all figured out. You know, when it comes to sacrificial giving, I have room to grow. Like everyone here, I need to continually ask myself, what should my attitude toward my money be in light of the good news of God's grace? You know, how generous am I really, honestly? You know, is it a prior, giving a priority to me? Is sacrificial giving a priority to me? Am I truly generous? Because here's the thing, at the core of God's heart is generosity. He is unrivaled in humility, in giving, and in sacrifice. And Jesus, God has has been ridiculously generous to our world, to me and to you. And when we come to know that and come to understand that and experience God's grace through faith in Christ and anticipate resurrection to new life eternal, then humble, sacrificial giving to others becomes much, much more reasonable. And so my prayer this morning is that as individuals and as a church, for the sake of our world, 
and the people in it who need so desperately to hear the good news. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we'll give as much as we are able and even beyond our ability. Or as we like to say, we will be people, God's people, who are ridiculously generous. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I, um, <clears throat> I think that if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest before you, we admit that um, uh, we, are, we are selfish by nature and um, we sometimes are, are like the guests at the dinner party who are just scrambling for more, uh, for more recognition, for more power, for more status, for more things. We're just scrambling, scrambling, scrambling. And yet you tell us there's no need to scramble anymore. At other times, we're, we're like the host, and we give for what we can get out of it. We give to those who can repay us instead of those who cannot. To the poor, the marginalized, the lost, the spiritually destitute, to people who need to hear of your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray that um, as we reflect on Jesus' words, uh, we might also recognize that um, if we exalt ourselves before you, we will be humbled. But if we humble ourselves before you, we'll be exalted. Because entrance to the feast of the kingdom isn't about what we can do, what we can bring, or our goodness. It's about your grace. And all we need to do is accept it, to accept the invitation to follow the servant, to follow Jesus. And I pray that we would all understand that, perhaps in a new and fresh way today. And because of it, may we have a deep sense of your grace in our lives. And may that, may that grace just overwhelm us and, out, and flow out through us to the people into the culture, into the world in which we live. And may uh, our ridiculous generosity be both honoring to you, may it make a difference, a spiritual difference in the life of those you love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Thank you all for uh, for being with us this morning, and uh, and I hope I hope that makes sense to you. You know, the whole idea of how we live our lives is, is impacted by the grace of God, and we understand it when we experience it in Jesus. It makes a difference in the way that we view life, the way that we view relationships, the way that we view the world, the way that we view our uh, our money, our stuff, um, the way that we view our future. We're not just accidents. We're creatures created by God, a God who loves us and has sacrificed and given himself for us. And uh, entrance to the feast of the kingdom is not about uh, what you can bring to it. Um, It's about just following the servant and accepting the invitation. And following Jesus, that's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you understand that. And if that's something you're still struggling with, I encourage you to talk to someone you know from Parkview. Let them share their story with you. Or following the service, you can go up and talk to one of our prayer team folks who will be up here. Or maybe you're just going through something in life that you need to talk to somebody about. They're here for you as well. Okay? But uh, thanks for coming. I hope you come, out, come back next week as we continue with the series. I'm finding it helpful. Hopefully you are as well. But uh, 
Come on back. We'll talk a little bit more about um, things next Sunday. But in the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you. Now, Lord, I ask that as we go our own way, uh, we would go with a, a deep sense of your love and grace in our lives because of Jesus. Not because of us, but because of what he has done for us. Because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, our resurrection to new life is guaranteed. And so we can, we can live freely. We can stop scrambling. We can be ridiculously generous to those who are in need, especially those who are spiritually destitute. May we become that kind of people individually, as families, and as a church. May we give ourselves in such a way to make a difference and bring people to Jesus. And may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.